Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked. Now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio. And your host is Laura Redmond. On this program, Laura will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here is your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I am dedicated to giving you tools every week that you can take away from this show in order to live a more empowered life, a happier life, a more mindful life, a more balanced life. So today we're going to be focusing on a technique that I recently learned something about. I've been trying different workshops with this wonderful woman that we have on air today, and it's improvisational workshops, how to use improv in the world to be more present, to have a more effective and compassionate exchange. Um I've learned a lot about it. I have a lot more to learn, and I wanted to share it with you today. It's very, very timely. I had booked Barbara to be on our show months ago, and I'm really glad it's today because I feel like no matter which political party you were rooting for, we are surviving in an unfavorable environment right now, and I believe that we must figure out a fresh language to approach each other. And I think that improv might be one of those options. So I want to introduce Barbara. Barbara Tent, PhD. She is a professor of conflict resolution, a facilitator, organizational trainer, licensed psychotherapist, and an aspiring improviser. She has been involved in facilitating trainings using the techniques of applied improv since 2009. Barbara has conducted workshops on power and status in Amsterdam, Berlin, Krakow, Lisbon, London, Montreal, San Francisco, and Portland, Oregon. She is co-president of the Applied Improvisation Network, and we are very lucky to have her with us today. I'm so glad to have you because I need um, I, I need your help today. I think a lot of us feel like we need your help today. Uh, how, how do you want to help us figure out this fresh language that today we're going to call the Applied Improvisation Language? Why don't you explain to our listeners what Applied Improvisation is? Typically, improv or improvisation is a performance art. It's often comedic, and that's what people know of it. What they don't know when they're watching it, it it's actually a process that is based on a very um, deliberate set of principles, uh, guidelines, and methods of engagement with the people on stage are using. It looks like they're making it up on the stage. They are. They're making it up, but they're making it up from a particular framework. So the concept of applied improvisation is using those same principles, methods, tools, philosophies for non-performance-based things. And there are many of us all over the world using this methodology in all kinds of contexts. 
um, which I can share with you if you'd like. I'd love you to share a lot of what you just said with us more in depth, but but before you do, I wanted to say that I have heard, I noticed that when you just said it's used in all these different ways, I do hear that often companies are now using it, um, that they're using aspects of improv training to better their world within their business world, their academic world, their humanitarian organizations. It -hmm. seems like it's a methodology for interaction and transformation that I hear a lot about now. You know, it used to be that you would hear certain types of coaching that companies would bring in, and now you hear improv, improv. It's, It's all over the place. So when you say framework, what would be the framework you're referring to? Well, it's... First of all, it's based on a set of, as I said, it's both principles, philosophy, um, and, and a methodology for interaction. So there are different ways that organizations might use uh, improvisation. Sometimes they bring people in and they take some of their employees through interactive activities for team building, things like that. And, and sometimes those are the more kind of fun or free days. And, and that's, that's fine. That's great. You know, organizations can bring people in for those kinds of retreats. The other ways that improvisation is used uh, might be actually when you don't even know it's being used. A lot of times I, I call myself a little bit of a stealth improviser because I will use techniques or I will use processes or activities or practices from improvisation and all kinds of training that I do, but I don't necessarily call it improv because these are simply activities and principles that get people connected, get people supported, get people engaged, and get people into a spontaneous and creative mindset that allows them to do very, very compelling things in their own work environments. So in improvisation right now is being used for all kinds of things all over the world. You, you mentioned that I am uh, co-president of the Applied Improvisation Network, which is an international organization of people using these methodologies in all kinds of ways. So some examples are people use this process and practice for working with uh, soldiers or veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, children with autism, training, training doctors and medical students in uh, more effective patient, doctor-patient interaction. Uh, I teach improv for dispute resolution in law schools and for conflict resolvers. People are using it for um, working with refugees. In fact, Viola Spolin, who was one of the founding thinkers and practitioners of improv began some of these processes in working with refugee and immigrant children because it transcended language. They could use these activities in ways that got people connected um, in preverbal or, or nonverbal ways. People Give us are using an example. This working with, with youth around issues of race. It was used in some of the street protests in <clears throat> Istanbul and Taksim Square. Uh, so it's used in all kinds of ways because it gets people to think spontaneously and on their feet. So, so let's give an example. Let's go back to your veteran example, and and mm-hmm. maybe you can. What what would be an example of um, applied improv that would be used in that particular application? Mm-hmm. Well, it might be a group of people who have come together, and often people with. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, one of the things that's very difficult for them is to be in the moment, 
because there's such a high level of anxiety. So a lot of the activities are actually bringing people into the moment. A lot of improvisation is very uh, similar to mindfulness work because it starts with the need to be in the moment. You need to be able to respond in the moment to what's offered to you because you don't have a script. So you actually have to be attentive, you have to be mindful, you have to be receptive and responsive in the moment. So when working with um, let's say soldiers or, or veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, getting people into the moment, doing activities like that, helping them stay connected, helping them uh, work with some of the very strong emotions that they're having. Um, there are many, many activities um, to do. What's your favorite? What would be your favorite one with one of those unplanned moments where you would use the goal of becoming more present um, in a group activity such as the veterans? What, what would be that exercise specifically? Well, I have several favorites. Um, one of my favorite activities, it's, it's hard to do this on the radio because, of course, you want to be able to demonstrate and, and show, but one of my favorite activities is actually um, something that's simply called Pass the Zap. And what you're doing is you're passing a clap around a circle and you're saying zap at the same time that you're clapping with your partner next to you. And you get people into a rhythm and they have to clap together one at a time, you know, two at a time, passing it down the circle. They have to be mindful. They have to be connected. You have to be focused. You have to be prepared and aware. And then what you do is you move to people being able to actually send the clap around the circle. So you actually don't know when it's going to come to you, which really means you have to be ready and present and in the moment. Um, And a lot of the work that we do, um, you know, we say in a lot of interactive uh, training methodology that the learning is is not as much in the activity, it's in the reflection on the activity. So Mm. every activity then follows with a strong debrief. What happened? What did you notice? What did you learn? Um, what surprised you? And, and then we think about how to apply that to people's actual real-world context so that it becomes that notion of applied improvisation. Uh, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm working with climate change scientists in developing tools for resilience so that when they go out into their communities, rural communities in Asia and Africa, and trying to teach them about, you know, floods or drought or earthquake or the kinds of things that they're going to have to adapt to, uh, they're using interactive methods as a way to engage communities because people need ways to connect to this information that's different than somebody standing up with a PowerPoint and showing them, you know, how high the flood's going to go if it comes. One thing I noticed in your workshops, and I've done, I think, three or four now, and I always take away a lot of great tools around the the whole idea that we use words to talk, which is, is something that we often think is how we communicate. But what I noticed in these workshops that had the use of these improv exercises is that there's so much more going on in every second beyond the words. There's the actions. There's the energy between people. There's the exchange. And, and when you do those exercises where you're passing a clap or a word and you're going right or left or, you know, changing or receiving, you become much less guarded, which is why I mm-hmm. think it could be so powerful in a business environment, but mm-hmm. and certainly more mindful and present. But the other thing is there's a, I see people, I saw people in the workshop, I felt, 
more clearly based on the actions, the words, the moments, the exchange of energy. And that for me was like breaking down a a layer, a barrier between two people in any unplanned moment that Mm -hmm. would be a communicative moment. Yes. Yes, you got it. <laughs> oh, good. So I did get a lot out of these workshops with you. But but yeah. I didn't go into it knowing that that would be the transformational exercise outcome for me. And when you debriefed after these exercises, as you alluded to or mentioned, there, there was always such an interesting experience of what everybody got out of those exercises around the room. And I think mm-hmm. the message that I always took away from each of the workshops was that we just can't underestimate what's going on in every single moment between people it's so much greater bigger larger than words yes it is and um improvisational work requires again it's a mindfulness practice it requires us to use all of us um you know physically emotionally intellectually and a lot of what gets in our ways and i think most people have some of this experience is when we overanalyze or over intellectualize things we often get stopped with fear we're afraid to try something we're afraid to risk we're afraid to make a mistake one of the improvisational practices <clears throat> is leaping into a situation without knowing what comes next because you have to. That's the, that's the point. And so there's a certain letting go that comes with that. And when you practice that, all of the things that we're working with in this methodology, it's like working a muscle. It's like working a muscle. You know, when you're, when you're weightlifting so you can run a marathon, it's, it's not that you're going to carry the weights with you in the marathon. It's that you're practicing that so that when you run the marathon, you're more adept. And it's the same thing with these activities. You're doing these activities, you're practicing, you're working these muscles about creativity or spontaneity or letting go or collaboration or being in the moment or facing uncertainty. And that's the work. And when you're actually having to do that in your real life, you're more prepared. And there are many, many examples of that. And um, so it, it's, it's sort of like, you know, letting go of planning, but being prepared being prepared Ooh, yeah. for whatever comes to you because that's what we have to do. Nobody wakes up with a script every day about what's, what's going to happen. Um, so the better our, you know, we are at being prepared for the unknown, um, the, the more equipped we are to deal with the, the many things that happen to us in our work lives, in our community lives, in our personal lives. Um, there's, a, there's a term that we've used in some of our collaborations and work in this area called VUCA, which actually roots from the military language, which stands for uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And we are Mm. living in a VUCA world right now. Mm. And so the more equipped we are to respond to that with these skills and with these strengths and muscles, the better we're going to be. And at the core of improvisational practice is the ability to collaborate. Mm. Uh, the ability to collaborate, um, you know, in the face of uncertainty and the ability to collaborate with limited resources. You don't know what's in front of you, so you have to use whatever is in front of you. Um, and we need that very badly right now. Yeah. Well, the yes, the power of yes in the workshop, I loved the, the when we'd go around the circle and you would just say yes to whatever was offered to you. Mm-hmm. And, and with just that simple affirmation of yes, there would be great 
openings that occurred. The other thing I wanted to mention before we get into more of the status and power, which I think is very parallel and representative of this week in our history, but there was one thing you did in one of these exercises I wanted to speak about, which was the I see you. Um, go, re- remind me again, you look at your partner, you're standing in front of a human being, you're looking into their eyes. Mm-hmm. Please remind me of that exercise in improv. Yeah, I will. And I do want to say that <clears throat> not everything that I do actually comes from straight improvisational theater, right? So I use a lot of interactive and, and dynamic methodologies and mix it up. So this particular activity probably wouldn't be directly related to improvisation, but it's something that I actually learned from a colleague at a, a workshop, and I found it to be very powerful. And so you're, you just pair people off. A lot of the activities we do, you can do in pairs, you can do in threes, fours, groups. So it really gets people interacting in different formats. And this particular activity, you are paired off, and you just take turns doing these three things. Um, and... Um, you first look at them and you just say, I see. And they look at you and they say, I see. Uh, And then the next round is you just say, I see you. And they say, I see you. And in the third round, you ask them to imagine that the other person also is somehow them and also representing someone else that's important to you. And people invoke all kinds of um, people from when I did this activity, I invoked my father who was no longer living. And in the third round, you just look at them and you say, I'm so glad to see you. Um, and it sounds very simple and yet it's very powerful and very moving. And, um, it is about connection and is about seeing. And what is true in improvisational work is is really seeing what's in front of us. One of the principles of, of improv is notice more. You know, you can walk onto a stage as a performer and, and notice what's available to you. Uh, in life, you can walk into a room and notice what's available. Uh, I just recently had an experience where I was teaching a class, and it's a class that was kind of thrown at me at the last minute. I wasn't at all prepared for this, and I had to use what was available to me. And it happened to be Halloween, and I grabbed a lollipop, and we used, you know, we used a lollipop as a prop for a conflict resolution uh, activity. And I didn't plan it, but it was there, and I used it. So <laughs> it's that same principle of seeing what's there, seeing what's in front of you, really noticing, which we miss if you, if you look around, you know, look around the room that you're in, and, and really look and suddenly realize all the things you actually don't ever notice. Hmm. So uh. improvisational work is about really bringing yourself to a place of noticing more because then you have so much more at your disposal. Oh, it's so true. And with people, I love that exercise so much because just sitting in front of someone and saying, I see, and they say back, I see, And then when you say, I see you, and they look back and say, I see you, and you're looking at, you're looking at each other, like right there, there's so much going on. And then by the third one, you know, it's, I I remember saying, I am, you said, I am glad to see you, but it wasn't it. I think in our workshop, I said, I am happy to see you. And that changed then my heart space within that Mm. interaction. Mm -hmm. And then when someone Mm -hmm. says back to you, 
I'm so happy to see you. Like mm-hmm. that right there, those three takeaways, I, I want all the listeners to just, mm-hmm. as an experiment, I want them mm-hmm. to try that exercise, whether it's yeah. with their child, their best friend, their neighbor, their lover, try yeah. that exercise. That's a great, great takeaway because it really changes the exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, it is. It's it's deeply connective. And that is, again, one of the core elements of, of improvisational work. Good improvisational work happens because you, you are connected to the people you're working with. Um, it's not just about collaboration. It's, connect, it's connectivity. Well, and you can connect negatively, yes? Like yes, that. of course. All right, so let's go to status and power, because one of the things you're really known for in the improv world is being not only a fantastic teacher, but being able to explain status and power. Um, for all <laughs> well, of our I listeners. I had to be confused for a long time before I could explain it to others. <laughs> so please help us understand what you mean when you speak about status and power, and how you use that in your teaching to explain human interaction. Okay. So status is a concept that comes primarily from Keith Johnstone, who is a, a brilliant improvisational teacher from, <clears throat> from the UK, but now lives in Canada. And I had the great good fortune of training with him this summer in London. He's 83 years old, and he's written a book called Impro. For anybody who's interested, it's from the 70s, but it's one of the foundational books, and there's a chapter on status. And just because language is confusing in understanding status, it doesn't refer to social status as we typically think of that term. What it refers to is in-the-moment interaction, Um, in-the-moment interaction of who's up, who's down, who's dominant, who's submissive. and when I first entered the world of applied improvisation and improvisation, I, I was very fascinated with this because in my work as a psychologist, in my work as a conflict resolver and, and professor, and a lot of the work I've done in, in that world has been around social conflicts and, and groups in conflict where there are strong issues of power. Um, and inevitably, that's a lot of why people are in conflict and gets in the way of its, its resolution. So I was very compelled by the concept of status, but I was also very confused because people kept referring to it like, like he, somebody would say, well, he's the CEO, uh, he's high status. And I'd say, well, no, that's not status, that's rank. Then, you know. So <clears throat> I have a collaborator, Simo um, Rutrin um, from uh, Finland, and we, he's a, a great expert on, on status and has been for a long time. And we have developed work together around um, understanding the connection between status behavior, so it's what's happening in the moment, um, and its relationship to things like rank, your position, uh, its relationship to things like social power, social um, dynamics like race or gender or class, because we're conditioned to behave in certain ways. And so the ways that we engage with, with each other around status are very much related to those things. Uh, we're looking at it as it relates to issues of, of confidence, how some people might walk around with big status behavior, but inside might not feel very big. So we're looking at the relationship um, between those things. And so status work is, is something very, very powerful in working with groups because it's happening all the time. Status interactions are happening 
all the time when people relate, and much of it is out of people's awareness. So part of the work is to both increase awareness and to increase flexibility. Most of us have, well, all of us have sort of a a status comfort zone, you know, and again, that's based on conditioning. And there are times when using, you know, what we call high status behavior, when you're big, when you're loud, when you take up a lot of space, when you tend to dominate, when that's useful. You know, maybe in an emergency situation where you need to take charge. Uh, there are times when using low status behavior, using a softer voice, using less space, um, de- being more deferential is useful. Uh, working with a child or working with um, a, a team of people that, you know, you want to take the lead, you know, you want to, you know, use more of a deferential approach. So the, this work is not about, you know, high status good, low status bad. It's about increasing your range of flexibility, increasing your awareness to your own status interactions, being more adept at knowing when and how to use different status choices. Um, for good, <laughs> for the good of others, for the good of the organization, for the good of the group, because any of these tools can be used to manipulate and dominate, right? So our our goal is to use this knowledge and to use these tools to help people be better collaborators, to help people be better leaders, to help people feel more empowered, um, and to look at that in the work that we're doing as it relates to all of these other social constructs is very, very powerful because men and women and people of different races and um, ethnicities or, or cultures are, are conditioned very differently around um, status behavior, you know, how much space to take up and how loud to be. And, and there's a lot that goes on there that, that we need to learn more about. Well, and I was just, I've been really loving uh, Krista Tippett's book, Becoming Wise, and I wanted to read this to you. This is from her book on page 30, and she says, our cultural mode of debating issues by way of competing certainties comes with a drive to resolution. We want others to acknowledge that our answers are right. We call the debate or we get on the same page or we take a vote and then we move on. The alternative involves a different orientation to the point of conversing in the first place to invite searching, not on who is right and who is wrong and the arguments on every side, not on whether we can agree, but on what is at stake in human terms for us all. There, yeah. there is, and she finishes that chapter or that paragraph by saying, there is value in learning to speak together honestly and to relate to each other with dignity without rushing to common ground that would leave all the hard questions hanging. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so when we're, in, when we're in this idea of status, and again, I want to, I want to keep understanding through your language on the, um, on the radio, how status and power are different alike, uh, or or where they are separate or together. And in that mm-hmm. paragraph, what I'm curious about is how you would discuss those two concepts with respect to getting people to commune or come together in a debating situation where there's not necessarily agreement, but then where that transformational tool of status and power is helpful or Mm -hmm. applicable. Mm -hmm. Well, first I want to say that um, part of what I hear in that quote is sort of the difference between debate and dialogue. And I also teach a lot about dialogue. Um, and so dialogue as a methodology that's very different from debate where you're not looking to prove somebody wrong, you're not, you're not looking to get your 
you know, your, your points in so you can win and, and dialogue and, and improvisational work are also very well synced because they are about listening. They are about suspension. They are about being in the moment. They are about receptivity. They are about what we call beginner's mind, you know, rather than expert mind. You know, beginner's mind is, is a concept that means you go in open, receptive, curious. Um, and, and, and those are all critical aspects for dialogue, particularly dialogue across differences, because it's easy to dialogue with somebody that you agree with. <laughs> um, and right now we are at a time when there are so many vital and deep differences between people. And, and, and it's so important that we use these practices to learn to dialogue with each other. Um, in intersecting that with thinking about status and power, again, I want to differentiate. So status is maybe to make it simpler for the listeners, we would call it status behavior, right? So, you know, it's literally something you can see or you can hear, you know, how much space somebody's taking up, how much they're talking, you know, in groups, you know, some people talk all the time, some people don't talk very much at all, Um, you know, how loud they are, how much they interrupt, um, how, how much they stare versus look away. These are all status behaviors. Um, if you were to say to me, um, so I want you to say to me, uh, I just read Moby Dick. I just read Moby Dick. Oh, my God. I, can't, I could not get through that book. I could not get through that book, no matter how hard I tried. Okay, I want you to say, I just read Moby Dick again. I just read Moby Dick. For the first time? So, nope. so those are two, <laughs> the second those time. Are two status, <laughs> those are two status responses. You know, the first time I kind of lowered myself, which then has the seesaw effect of elevating you, and the second time I lowered you, right? Mm-hmm. So, so how we talk to each other is, you know, are also very status-based um, interactions, and it's happening all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and again, in connection to things like, um, you know, so power comes in many forms, right? Power can come <clears throat> through what we might call assets. You know, I have money, I have beauty, I have um, large network of friends. Those are all forms of power in some way. <clears throat> I have power um, through my rank. Am, am I the CEO? Am I the, <clears throat> the janitor, right? So, so my rank gives me certain amounts of power or lack of power. Um, how confident do I feel, right? If I don't have a very high rank and I don't have a lot of assets, but I feel incredibly confident, it's going to give me a certain amount of power in how I engage. Um, and, and the critical piece that we're most compelled by is how status interactions relate to our social conditioning. So if we think about gender, you know, men and women, by and large, um, are, are conditioned differently. Um, men generally are conditioned to be more comfortable taking up space, more comfortable initiating, more comfortable uh, taking the lead because it's the conditioning. Women generally, you know, obviously not exclusively, have been more conditioned to sit back, to not take up as much space, don't be loud. Um, So if you walk into a group of organizational leaders and you want to teach status work, you can't assume that people are starting at the same level because Mm -hmm. the social conditioning related to gender or, or other forms of cultural or racial um, background are very much at play and they're deeply rooted. They're deeply rooted. 
So we have to look at this. We have to look at this relationship and understand that we are both behaving and responding unconsciously to the messages that we get. So if we see a woman behaving with high-status behavior, there's something incongruent there, and it makes us uncomfortable. There's a dissonance, and we want to reduce that dissonance. Okay, so, so let's jump. Let's let's take that launching pad and and yeah. and let me let me ask you on the. I'm just curious if when you were watching the presidential debates, assuming you did, and yeah. you know the white male against the white female, um, yeah. American American, what when you watch something like what we've all just been through these last several grueling months, I felt that there was great status being thrown around by the male, the white male. And then there was somewhat of a demure white female, but there was strength, there was power, right? So exactly. How, so, so, so power, as I said, comes in many forms. And when, when we, when we use the word status in, you know, the world of improvisation, we're talking about behavior, status behavior. And that's, you know, it took me about two years <laughs> of discussing and arguing with my colleagues. Like, what do you mean to finally understand and, and to unpack it this way? Well, there are all kinds of status issues, um, in, in those debates and, and particularly around, um, the gender phenomenon. Um, because what you have are, you know, there's a lot of research as well that suggests that, you know, women who seek um, power or women who seek high positions are, are, are seen as untrustworthy. You know, they might be seen as competent, but there's something we just don't trust about them. You know, there's a, there's a study that um, was done where the exact same um, case the exact same uh, entrepreneurial case from a business person was proposed to business students. Um, And for some of them, the person's name was Heidi, and for some of them, the person's name was Howard. Um, And the students overwhelmingly rated both Heidi and Howard somewhat equivalent in terms of competence, but overwhelmingly rated Heidi very differently in terms of likability. Wow. Um, they just didn't like Heidi as much. It was the same exact case with two different names. And so what we see is that highly competent or highly achieving women, there's something that um, is, again, it goes back to that um, lack of congruence with our expectations, with our socialization. And so there's that likability factor. There's something we just don't like. There's something we just don't trust. Um, women who are assertive are seen as aggressive. You know, men who are aggressive are seen as assertive. Um, and, or and powerful. So a real, what's that? I think men that are, are assertive or aggressive are perceived as powerful. Yes. And yes. so I think, I think aggressive and powerful are very different words. Yes. So what I'm so saying is the same behavior from uh, people of different genders will be received very differently. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's think about that. In other words, if that's the conditioning and if that's the social norm, is it impossible for a female to win in the role of president of the United States? How do you how do you reverse this conditioned thinking? No, I don't think it's impossible, and I certainly hope it's not impossible. Um, I, I think, first of all, it's education. You know, there are 
there is something called the implicit association test. There are tests on implicit bias, unconscious bias that people can actually get online, take. You can see, and we're all conditioned. It's not just that men are conditioned against women. All of us are conditioned because we have all been socialized with much of the same messaging through our families, through our communities, through media, through education. You know, these are deep-rooted messaging. Um, so it does change, but it changes slowly. It changes with education. It changes with awareness. It changes with um, enough consciousness around this that we have to actually name it. And that's a lot of what happened in this election is that there was a, an attempt to continually name what was happening. And, you know, you didn't have to like the candidates to see what was happening. You could, you could have chosen not to vote for Hillary Clinton because you didn't like her policies and still see that she was being hailed, held to such an incredibly different standard because of her gender. Or that her, if she had, if she had even remotely behaved as Donald Trump had behaved, she would have been skewered um, because there's a tremendous pushback when we defy the norms that we are taught and that we live by, and it is slow change. Um, But certainly we have seen women in power, and, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately or neither, oftentimes, um, you know, women in power do behave more like men because it's the way that they actually have to survive (laughs) in still a very um, male-dominated arena. Um, So it's it's very, very tricky business, and and this certainly isn't true for every human. You know, anybody listening might say, yeah, but I have a man friend or I have a female friend who behaves differently. Of course, you know, we all all have, you know, every spectrum has people all over it. So we have very aggressive women. We have very demure men, of course. But in general, our conditioning um, asks us to be, you know, somewhat normed in those directions. Well, I remember when the campaign was um, happening and that very interesting commentary floated around the web about how Hillary Clinton would have been perceived had she had three marriages. and. Right you know, six children from three different men. And I mean, the standard is so much harder and higher for a woman that it would seem to me that then a powerful woman in terms of status would be more interesting and desirable than that status male unless he has developed those same qualities. So, in other words, you have to develop more qualities to become a respectful female in a, I guess it's like the, the, the whole way that the dollar is treated in paying women versus men. It's, it's, right. it's so unjust. Right. Um, but, well, but, and it's very connected to status. And, and what's true about what you shared about, you know, if, if Hillary had, you know, three, three husbands and five children and, you know, had never released her taxes and, and all those things, the same is true of, um, you know, President Obama. It, the same is true of race. I mean, we still as a society very much, um, you know, allow for things, um, you know, for, for white people and for men that we would not allow for, um, for women and, and people of other races. It's, it's just the way it is. And that does not seem to be going away anytime soon. Um, if you think about the interrupting factor during the debates, I mean, you know, he interrupted her so many more times. And that's a status behavior. 
you know, taking up space, interrupting. Um, and it's a very dominating thing, the way he moved around the stage. He's bigger, you know. It's, it's this whole space-taking thing. And again, you know, in a man, it's expected and it's congruent. In a woman, it's unexpected and it's aberrant. So the same behavior from different people is going to look very different. So when you're doing status training with people, you have to factor that in. You know, you absolutely have to factor that in. And when you're in these workshops teaching this, what do you do? Give us an example of something that you would do in a workshop where you were showing that status difference working with, let's just say, hypothetically, the six foot two male and the five foot one female. Mm -hmm. So some of what we do in these workshops, so, you know, I mentioned a variety of things. I mentioned rank. I mentioned assets. I mentioned confidence. I I mentioned sort of social power related to, you know, race and gender and class and other forms of sort of large group membership. Um, So we do a lot of activities that intersect various elements of those. So so one activity that we do is um, something that would intersect of a concept of rank with status behavior. And often we use playing cards so that we're not asking people to pick a number, right? Because, you know, you're going to pick what's comfortable for you or whatever. So we hand out playing cards. Boom, you got an ace. You're low. You know, boom, you got a 10. You're high. Um, and we mix it up, right? And so we, we have activities where uh, we have people, let's say, pair up, and um, one is the boss and one is the employee, and we give them some sort of a scenario, you know, maybe it's asking for a raise, let's say. Um, and we have them with several cards in their hand. And then we say go. And they have to pull their first card and they have to play that, um, play Status. that scenario from the card. So in oh, that that's the rank. scene, yeah, so the rank stays fixed. So you still have the same boss and the same employee in the same scenario, but we shift the statuses. So you might have a high-status boss and a low-status employee, which is a little bit congruent, right? But suddenly we might flip it. We might have a high-status employee and a low-status boss. And we, mm-hmm. and we get people to experience those different things. We get them to experience status behaviors that might be different than their own default style, because we all have, again, our own comfort zone related to our gender, to related to our culture, related to our personality. Uh, so we get them to practice different, and we get them to t- experience what's uncomfortable. We get them to see what happens when the status shifts, what, what's effective, what's not effective. And I want to make really clear that in this kind of work, high is not good and low is not bad. You know, they are just both different approaches that can be useful in different situations. And the key is to strengthen your flexibility and your awareness so that you can use different status choices in different contexts. So I was just flashing on the movie Goodwill Hunting mm-hmm. that with Matt Damon and mm-hmm. that he's the janitor who solves the most difficult math mm-hmm. problem ever put mm. on a blackboard, you know, and mm. so, so that's an interesting example of... Yeah, yeah, that's a great example, actually. I could unpack that one. So he has, um, he has low rank because he's a janitor in an Ivy League school where everybody else is, you know, privileged, right? He's, um, he's got an incredible asset, which is this brilliant mind that he has, Right, so that's an asset. Um, he, I think, has a fair amount of confidence, which allows him to 
go for it and allows him to go for the girl. You know, it allows him to, to try some of these things. Um, he also has somewhat high status behavior, which, you know, you see when he's beating, you know, there's a fight. He, you know, he has a sort of a defensive, somewhat, you know, angry posture, which can often come as a compensation for being sort of low social power. You know, he comes from poverty in a, in a world where there's a lot of affluence and privilege. So we begin to see the intersect between these phenomena. And, and mm. also in his therapeutic relationship that he develops, some of that defensiveness um, goes away and that his status behavior shifts, actually. He becomes softer. He, he you know, it, it really, it's a, it's a great example. So if you were going to give a takeaway tool with that example in mind, what would you say is a, a skill or a exercise where you're, you're, you feel like your status is low and you want to raise your status, but you want your to do it with... behavior? So you're talking about your status behavior? Yeah, your status behavior. And, and you had said earlier that it, for the sake of simplicity for the listeners, we're talking about status behavior. Right. So, right. so let's just say you have low status behavior and you want to raise it. You want to rise into a more high status position. What would be an exercise or something you could do to try to develop that and to empower that? Well, the thing about status work is there's not much you actually have to do other than do it. You know, it's, it's the yeah. resistance to doing it that is really where the work is. So mm. if you are typically moved through life in, in low status behavior ways, that's going to serve you in some situations. It's not going to serve you in others. So what I encourage people to do is simply practice what they're not as comfortable with. So if you're typically low status behavior, practice in you know, even just at home, you know, walking around bigger, using a louder voice, <clears throat> not not in an aggressive way, but, you know, again, women who are conditioned to be more diminutive, you know, what happens when you speak more assertively, right? <clears throat> so it's simply just practicing that. Those who are conditioned or socialized to take up more space and, and have high-status behavior, practice sitting back more. Practice, you know, going low. See what happens. It's just about practicing something different. Um, you know, I'm from New York originally, and so I am socially conditioned for sort of higher-status behavior in terms of the, the norm there. And when I moved out west to Oregon, you know, everybody thought, oh, my God, she, she's so aggressive, right? Because it was just a different norm, so I had to actually learn to low, I didn't know it at the time, that's what I was doing, that I, I wouldn't have called it status behavior, but I had to learn to talk more softly, to, to use my body less, to, to interrupt less, because again, it's sort of an interactive way of being sometimes in certain groups. So status behavior is simply something that we actually have to practice. The other thing I encourage people to do is to notice what's happening in their interactions with others. Verbally, are people raising themselves up or are they raising you up? Are they raising, you know, are they lowering themselves or are they lowering you verbally? Practice. Practice what happens when you actually make a conscious choice to elevate others with your status behavior. You know, so, so let's do let's do an that, example of that. Let's do let's do like the Moby Dick, but a different example of that for the listeners. Where okay, um, so and, um, uh, well, 
I think about work environments, and um, all of us have work environments that are sometimes challenged. And I think about the ways in which we can affirm and elevate others, even when we are most challenged. Yeah. Um, there is something in everybody we can validate, we can affirm. And when we're in conflict with them or when we're in fear, it's about the last thing we want to do. <clears throat> and, and it can, you know, staying behind that line contributes to the barriers between people. What happens if we just do something different? And we affirm somebody in, in, in just even a small way. I mean, even if you say to somebody, wow, you know, that shirt, and you have to be genuine. You can't, you can't be, you know, BSing. I mean, you actually have to say something that feels authentic. But even if the person that is your most difficult person comes into the room and, you know, <laughs> they're wearing something that you can say, wow, that, that shirt really lights up your eyes. You know, find something real. Or thanks for your effort on that. Even if we don't agree on, on the result, I, I appreciate the effort that you've made. Some way to lift people up. But more important than practicing that at this point, I think it's important for people to notice what's happening in their daily interactions. Like, mm. just turn the status lens on. Notice mm. who's taking up space. Notice who's elevating others or diminishing others. Notice what you're doing. Notice the seesaw effect because our responses to others um, are very much interdependent. So if somebody elevates themselves, you know, you're, you're, you can either go down or you can try to compete and go up, right? Mm, so, so interesting. So I think consciousness and awareness is really the first step. This reminds me, too, of what I often hear in my private practice from women about the competitive nature of women that's non-spoken and, you know, that there's a a language that women can speak that's simply the way they may look at each other or the way they may check each other out Mm -hmm. or the way that they may lower that woman's status, um, Mm -hmm. you know, but in a very subtle way. So Mm -hmm. one of the things... Yeah, I, I, it's subtle, but it's powerful, and you know it when you feel it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I want to circle back to one of the core um, improv principles, you know, that, again, we take from performance improv, but we use in, in the real world. Um, and, you know, so you mentioned saying yes, yes, and as one of the core improv principles. One of the other core improv principles is um, support your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, which means for performers, when they're on stage, you know they've got your back and they know you've got your, you know, um, you've got their back because that's one of the core principles is that your goal is to make the other person look good. Nobody's competing to be the hero or the star. Your goal is to make that other person look good and their goal is to make you look good. And that alone, if you take that into your relationships, I guarantee you your relationships will change. So can we do one of those yes exercises? Sure. Verbally. What do you want to do? Let, um, start me up. Try, try uh, let, let's, let's see what happens if we try to do that, because that's a great takeaway to try as well, another fun exercise. Well, I'm feeling um, in the moment, um, would you like to try a word-at-a-time story? Yes. <laughs> see, she said yes. So a word-at-a-time story is simply that, and you can do it with pairs, threes, fours, groups of people, Um, and I use this a lot in organizations to think about collaboration and what happens when you have to let go of the outcome. Uh, We're going to tell a story 
uh, one word at a time. So we each take a turn adding a word to the story. The only real guideline is that it has to be grammatically correct. And again, in taking care of your partner, you have to leave your partner with something they can work with. So it has to be a story that, you know, flows um, grammatically. And what are we going to tell a story about? How about hope? Phil's. Sorry, what? You started with hope. No, I'm saying we're going to tell a story about hope. Yes, So we're giving definitely. ourselves a topic. Yes, hope. Okay, okay. So um, once I went to the pool and I jumped in... And I found blue butterflies floating on the top of the pool. So... They came to my arm and gave me hope. So there you go. I mean, neither of us knew what that story was really going to be about. Um, neither of us could construct it independently. Um, and we co-created something together. And what I loved is that the butterflies were alive. They were alive, <laughs> even though they were floating. And that was very, very hopeful. We must yeah. keep rising and floating in yeah. all of the different ways that we might feel in this time yeah. in our life. Yeah, um, yeah, and I and I do want to say I know it's a hard time for a lot of people, no matter where they are on the the political spectrum, and there is such pain and divisiveness. And you know, improv isn't the the panacea; it's not the magic um, wand. There are many things that we need right now, and this is this is one. This is one that that can and does bring people together and help people connect and help people bridge differences and help people find joy and, and, and fun. I mean, a lot of this work is just fun. I mean, part of why I got into this work is I was working with such heavily traumatized populations and I was becoming tra- traumatized, you know, working with refugees and working with genocide survivors. And this work allows you to access um, New ways. A, a part of us that, you know, helps us move forward. We're moving forward, Barb Tent. I thank you so much for your wonderful insights today and for helping all of us be more aware and more compassionate. And as we say at the end of every show, don't forget you complete you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us again live next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin.